Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined by Dangerous David Moser, Academic Director of the CET program here in Beijing. How's it going, Dalai? Living dangerously, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so I guess I need to apologize to everybody first to let you know that this is a, actually a retake of this show, and alas, we are not joined as we were the first go-around by Jeremy. Uh, who woke up absurdly early to get on Skype with us from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, but we, we actually encountered fatal technical difficulties and had to deep six the entire episode. But um, we were going to do what we can to reconstruct it. And actually, I think it was maybe a friendly turn of fate because the original taping uh, was on Thursday, what was that, March, what, uh, 5th? something and and today's retaping on the 8th um between that time the story that we're looking at took a a very big turn that we'll be able to discuss this time um so on saturday february 28th a 104 minute documentary about air pollution in china was released on chinese video sites it was titled chongding zhixia and unless you've been living in a cave you have heard of or have seen under the dome uh the documentary was produced and presented by the ex CCTV uh, presenter Chai Jing. It hit surprisingly hard, pulled no punches. It combined very uncomplicated language and really strong emotional appeal with a lot of expert interviews with really pretty surprisingly slick production considering how low budget it was and a kind of TED Talks presentation style with Chai herself filmed in front of an audience of young Chinese people on a very TED-like dimly lit stage with really nice sort of video backgrounds. Within 48 hours, it had topped 100 million views across multiple video platforms. And by Monday, you would have been pretty hard-pressed to find a Chinese coworker or a friend who hadn't already had it sent to her. We seen her, we chat, had seen the thing. It was the subject of countless of millions of water cooler conversations on Monday and Tuesday. An enormous spike in searches on Baidu. I mean, this is one thing that I always do working there uh, for words like umai. Uh, smog on index.baidu.com uh, was already really, really visible on Sunday. There was a huge amount, an upsurge in, in searches for that. Um, many things were very remarkable about this documentary, and in the days that followed its release, there were a lot of questions that were being asked. There's still a lot of questions being asked. So why was a video that was just so hard-hitting and so unflinchingly critical of certain powerful entrenched interests, why was it allowed to spread as quickly as it was with only, at least initially, relatively gentle censorship and media controls. And why uh, were there, was it, was it, was it, why was it then taken down so abruptly on Friday uh, the 6th from all of the Chinese video sites except for, I think, iPhone from, you know, Feng Huang's. Um, there was a large number of officials or a lot of academics. I mean, people quite ranking in the, in the MEP, the Ministry of Environmental Protection, were on camera. Did that mean that there had been official buy-in and some protection for Chai Jing? This is still being debated. Uh, was there some significant, anything significant about the timing of the video's release? It was just uh, days, really, before the, you know, less than a week before the beginning of the two meetings of the National People's Congress and the CPPCC, the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. I love saying that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is 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 this actually some part part of a deeper kind of unseen power struggle taking place behind the scenes? So joining us today to unpack all of this and to talk more broadly about air pollution in China, about environmental activism, about environmental consciousness and environmental policy is Calvin Queck, who is head of the Sustainable Finance Program at Greenpeace here in China. Calvin, welcome to Seneca, or really welcome back to Seneca. <laughs> and thanks for taking the time to join us hey, again. Kaiser. Good to see you again. Sorry to make you re repeat, but uh, lovely performance last time. I'm sure it'll be. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and also, by great fortune, we have somebody who wasn't with us here last time. She dropped me a, a, a note on, and I said, hey, uh, you're in town. So we grabbed Peggy Liu, who's chairperson of JUICE, the joint U.S.-China collaboration on clean energy, well known to anybody who is in, in the environmental uh, community in China. Peggy, great to see you. I am so glad to be here to celebrate your birthday. Thank oh, you. let us not remind me. That's why she wrote to me just to say happy birthday. <laughs> so happy birthday to me. Uh, that was that was yesterday, and I'm a really old motherfucker now. Anyway, <laughs> we will not go there. Actually, I, I celebrated my birthday. Actually, it was my son's birth. I no longer have birthday parties because my son was born just a couple of days before me. So um, it, I spent my birthday basically serving pizza, cake, and, and dodging Nerf projectiles as him and all his <laughs> little boy friends ran around in our apartment shooting at each other. Mm -hmm. 
Um, let's let's just jump in then. Um, let's start off by talking about the enormously broad appeal of Under the Dome. I mean, this thing had over 250 million video views just on major video sites before it was taken down. Peggy, we'll start with you. What what do you think accounted for the incredibly popular appeal of this thing? I mean, why did this you know relatively long documentary about a depressing topic become all the rage in China? Well, I mean, it's quite simple to me, quite very clear in my mind. It's, it's the first time that somebody has taken a very dry topic and spoken to people through an ordinary mom's uh, eyes and spoken to people's hearts and not just to their heads. Mm-hmm. And this is actually something you taught me, Kaiser, oh, a few I did. years ago. Okay. You mean about emotional rather than rational appeal, because I have such emotional appeal. (laughs) (laughs) Emotional IQ. Well, you remember we were having that conversation about China Dream. Yeah. yeah, You were the one who taught me that the single biggest thing that we could be doing to change social norms, right, across China is use visual content, use entertainment, use TV. And she didn't use entertainment necessarily. She used a very dry 104-minute format, but she did use a mother's voice. Yes, and she did. that was the first time anybody in Chinese language has really done that very effectively. In right? fact, she started off right away with the, the mom thing, right? I yeah. mean, you know, uh, I guess the, the hook for the whole thing, um, I'm, no spoilers, I'm sure everybody who's listening who has already heard or has already seen the documentary, um, she talks about her unborn child having been diagnosed with a benign tumor that, you know, she never makes the claim that it was related in any way to to pollution. Well, she um, asks the question. And she asks, she but she asks the question mm-hmm. whether, what well, she doesn't suggest that it, it is in fact the case, but it's clearly on her mind, right? And uh, while the, the child actually does undergo surgery right after uh, its birth, uh, and, and thankfully she's she's doing great now, uh, she it, it was it was really kind of you know yeah gripping right. Well, as the mother of two sons, I can tell you, I immediately started tearing up. You know, it, I, and I, I know environment inside and out, so it's not like she was telling me anything new. But just the way that she talks and her voice, the tone mm-hmm. of her voice, you know, it was just uh, – it just made me tear up. Kelvin, what about for you? What, 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 what do you think – what got its hooks into people um, from your perspective? Was that, was that – was there anything else besides that? Yeah, so I'm not a parent. Uh, so not I yet. didn't uh, quite that, – that didn't quite there's uh, personally resonate with me. Uh, but I think uh, the middle portion of the film where she actually uses a lot of um, a very smart use of uh, cartoons to describe how PM2.5 <laughs> affects uh, the health appealed, uh, was appealing. And also how she, uh, her interviews with the, with really top or uh, leaders close to the government um, was actually very interesting as well. And she was able to extract very interesting uh, confessions, quote unquote, from these people. Uh, regarding their own feelings about uh, the environmental situation here in China. And, um, you know, this is a combination of really kind of TED Talk style. It reminded me a bit of kind of uh, um, um, uh, Steve Jobs kind of yeah, presentation yeah, style as that, well. Yeah, that sort of Apple thing, right? Yeah. And one more thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and I think uh, and it was just a really, really well done uh, pro- uh, program. It also did a good job of, 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 in a sense, taking the complex information through her own eyes as someone who is not an expert. And many times she said, you know, here's the chart. I don't understand any of this and neither do you, but I went to so-and-so, the expert, and he told me, you know, and then yeah. she condenses it down. Several times she does that, which yeah, is... it's very effective. Very tool. effective. Yeah. I'm going to borrow that from her yeah. in the future. That I mean, was... as, a, as, a, as a sort of a policy wonk, it was really interesting for her to have access to these documents and then to point out really specific articles right. that didn't quite make sense and ask, ask questions why they weren't mm-hmm. being used and so forth. And I have to say, she, I really admired the work because, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but I couldn't do what she did in, in terms of... Uh, having the camera in the face of, uh, you know, scary people in <laughs> rural oil companies or coal mines and ask them the tough questions in Chinese and uh, get those confessionary type of answers. I, I personally couldn't do that. Well, you're not an investigative reporter, are you? Right. And so that's what she is. Her background is in, as an investigative reporter. She really kind of um, made her bones when she was reporting was SARS, SARS in 2003. Right. Uh, went on to do quite a bit of hard-hitting uh, reporting from the Wintron quake in 2008, in May of 2008. Um, one thing that, that really struck me with that I, I thought, I mean, just to add my two cents to what was appealing about it was um, she broke down, I mean, here in China, especially working as I do in, in the Internet, 
uh, you get numb to the numbers. I don't know if this mm-hmm. happens to you, but I mean mm-hmm. the enormous numbers that fly around, 634 million internet users, you know, 250,000 monthly active users or million monthly active users on so-and-so or, you know, uh, 700 million uh, accounts on Wasting. You get numb to it. It doesn't make any sense to you. And when so when she th- throws out a number like that 800,000 new automobiles are uh, are added to to the streets of Beijing a year in recent years, she doesn't just throw out 800,000 as a number, I mean, so yeah, 0.8 million. But what does that mean? She says, if you line them up, nose to bumper, they go from Beijing to Shenzhen and back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, I mean, that's hard hitting, right? I mean, that's, that's, that just, it's, it's the apt metaphor because it, it's traffic jam, right? It, and it's, it's, the, the length is, is something that we're, we're kind of cognizant of. So yeah, I thought it, in, in so many ways, it was very, very, Effective, um, David. You read a lot of the viewer comments about the comment about the documentary itself. Um, what was the gist? If you had to sort of break it down into the sort of the, the thumbs up, thumbs down, was it, was there more praise? There was, more there was more, definitely more praise. Mm-hmm. I think last time I mentioned the most common phrase was "jiao," mm. which is kind <laughs> which of ironic. Is ironic. CTO is the problem yeah. in a way. But uh, what I was struck by, and you know, most of them were just very quick. You know, yeah, you go girl, kind of uh, in tone, but there was a, a surprising without the sexist kind of sense. Without in yes, that, exactly. Right. But um, there was a lot of diversity and a lot of, and there was even some some blow blowback. What's the word? Pushback mm-hmm. on the part of some some maybe some strident nationalists who who questioned her credentials and uh, it just got obviously were mad that she was bashing China. They perceived her as bashing China. But overall, it was positive. Overall, the most of the positive tended to be just at last someone who's speaking the truth. At last, I understand, you know, mm. what's going on. But the longest ones were reserved for the rants, people that, that are sort of... Were angry about Yeah, her. angry about her, uh, you know, taking uh, umbrage at, the, you know, criticizing the, the, the motherland. Mm. Well, well, Peggy, I mean, um, as you know, working for sort of a foreign NGO here, um, and, you know, you do try, you try to do as much of your work as possible in Chinese, right? And and um, you do most of your talks actually in Chinese and and all that. And you, like me, you're an ABC, and you know it's kind of a second language. To very you, A, uh, very A, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what would what would the result have been if somebody like you, or somebody like me, or somebody even you know who, with a white face, had uh, tried to produce this kind of a documentary? Would there have been that kind of a, a positive reception, or do you think that a lot of Chinese people there would have been more of these kind of strident nationalists? Just you know. Uh, who who really resent being browbeaten about about China's? Well, you know, I've been talking about that a lot with my team because, mm-hmm. as you know, for the last several years, we've been trying to think about how we can use video as the medium to get the story out, how to change consumer behavior. Um, I, I th- if you listen to some of the comments, people will say, "Oh, well, criticize her and say, oh, your baby was born outside, right, in the right, U.S.'" Right. So they're already trying to say, "Oh, you're not Chinese enough to criticize China. You know, you don't love China enough." Whereas from my point of view, what what are you talking about? You know, she she is, was born in China. She works in China. She loves her country clearly. Um, so where whatever you do, no matter what shade of Chinese you are, there's going to be some sort of criticism, whether you're not North enough if you're from the South or, you know, you're not South enough if you're from the North, etc. So I think Chinese people in general are going to try and, uh, you know, divide, segregate. I think that the interesting thing to me in the criticisms is how the tide shifted after the last couple, uh, the first couple of days, mm-hmm. right? So the question to me is: Was there a concerted campaign to try and shut her down, to try and sabotage her credibility? Okay. Which yeah, let's. That's the really want, interesting question. You want to that talk we about want that later? To. Yeah, exactly. We will talk about the whole uh, business of you know, how this thing was censored. But I guess maybe first. Let's try to let's 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 lay yeah. out lay out the, wanted, the documentary itself. Right. I wanted just to mention another thing that we mentioned last time, but just the fact that she was very much speaking to a middle class, white collar, yuppified audience. If you see in the documentary, it's mostly young younger youngish people, and that that also that she, you know, China has a huge middle class now. Somebody pointed out. I saw China. Yeah. Famous. I mean, um, and in a certain sense, she was speaking to that new kind of empowered middle class. So th- these are people who could actually do something. And I was also struck by the fact that uh, 
whereas so many uh, many times when you talk about pollution in, in, in China and you say, you know, well, China inevitably has to go through this. England went through its industrial revolution. China has to do the same thing. It's always tied to GDP as if it's just this is the inevitable consequence of development. That's all. And there's nothing you can do about it. She, this documentary, she, all throughout, she, she was always pointing out ways in which it was not just GDP mm. and, it, and that there were actually uh, technological uh, methods you could use or, or, or means. And there were also regulatory uh, uh, you know, measures that could be taken to, that are to cut pro to, growth. Yeah, and that, and that this, this rising middle class with a voice and with clout could actually put pressure on the powers that be to instantiate these things. And I, th- I thought that was, in a way, one of the, most, the biggest contributions that she made and maybe one of the reasons why the, whoever it was that, that, that put the guillotine down was a little bit afraid of it because it was empowering as well as enlightening. And, that mm-hmm. was, uh, and also it went viral. As I said last time, I think her, her, her guilt, her, her crime was vir- virality. Right. If it had been just moderately getting a few hits and likes. That it, but this thing was, a cr- this thing was in- insanely popular. That's right. Mm. It was absolutely I insane. honestly think it's already done the good that it was meant to do. It doesn't actually need to still be up there. Mm. It's you know. If That's you, what Calvin said too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This minute ago. I mean, before the podcast started. So yeah. then we should yeah. let Calvin say it again. <laughs> no, 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 no. Again, this is we're still ta- that that's still sort of on the topic of its censorship. Right. But before we go there, I I want to kind of lay out. I don't want to do a full exegesis on the documentary itself. I think a lot of people will have already seen it. But I do want to at least hit some of the, the the highlights of it. Who are the culprits, Calvin? Who who does she uh, focus her energy at her ire at? Who are, who's who's really you know responsible? What what uh, in, entrenched interests or what forms of fossil fuel? Right. Yeah, I mean, so she hand, she takes on a whole bunch of issues regarding air pollution. It is a very complicated topic in China. There are multiple sources of pollution in China. It has it's related to China's overuse of coal or unclean unclean use of coal, uh, over industrialization in the province that surrounds Beijing, Hebei. Uh, so you have overcapacity in the steel, glass, cement sectors, and so forth. He talks about the transportation sector here in China as well, uh, freight and so forth. And also, if you're going to have uh, an entire northeast China, which is incredibly industrialized, we well, need to have a regulatory, regulatory process or a system in place to regulate it and to make sure that it's not over, overproducing and overpolluting. And um, so I think, uh, yeah, she, she, I mean, she, and, she, and then what she was, did was really, really good was to actually unpack that to such a degree where we, we can actually see uh, uh, those issues in in the flesh in the life, right? When she mm-hmm. actually went down to the ground and actually tried to figure out what were those trucks coming into China, what were they bringing in, uh, sorry, in into, into Beijing, Beijing right. right? And why 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 weren't they subject to various kinds of standards that regarding fuel quality? It right? was very yeah huge. And if it basically turned out that they were bringing in uh, necessities for Beijing and they were on, on a green green lane, so they they, they weren't being checked by the by the by the traffic police. So it's amazing how she's able to sort of talk about it broadly, kind of introduce kind of the policies in place and then kind of film on the ground what's supposed to happen and what really doesn't happen. So, Okay, let's, let's talk first about coal, uh, I mean, which is, I think, is the first major culprit she goes after. Uh, she gives some really startling statistics here, for example, that, uh, I mean, I think maybe a lot of people knew this, but it, it hadn't really ever been laid out so starkly for me that China burns more coal than the rest of the world combined. Mm. And she adds to that the fact that that hasn't been the case for a country since England in the 1860s, <laughs> uh, which is just, I mean, that's that's astonishing to me. And she, she, she uh, you know, talks also about, uh, the, the other thing that was really surprising to me was just the disproportionate contribution of small coal burning, mm. uh, small-scale coal burning. I'd always thought that this was essentially a problem of the big power plants, mm. but um, I, I didn't realize that that 20-plus percent of, of small-scale burning contributes such a disproportionately large amount of, of actual particulate pollutants in, 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 in the air. Um, can you, can you uh, Peggy or Calvin, either of you, or, or, uh, talk about what, what some of the, the, the big problems are with coal and what her suggested solutions are to... Yeah, so, I mean, the big problem with coal, I guess, with the use of coal in the surrounding regions of Beijing is the fact a lot of it's unregulated, right? So you have small-scale boilers, which are powering small-scale steel steel mills in Hebei. And a lot of these uh, steel mills um, don't have necessary uh, necessary approvals in place. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, have uh, they burn coal uh, in a way that's completely um, environmentally destructive. Uh, they don't have uh, they're using the worst kind of coal, lignite. She talked about lignite quite a bit. Let's let's, let's, let's talk about lignite. I mean, lignite that was an interesting thing. So she showed this picture mm. of this sort of beige colored rock that you would never would have thought was was coal. this is a a fossil fuel in the most literal sense. There's a fucking trilobite in the <laughs> in, in 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 the, the photo that she's it's got a, a fossil in it. Right. And then lignite is what very young coal, right? That's right. That's right. It's the it's the cheapest, lowest quality uh, form of coal. It hasn't and been like adequately pressure cooked in the sort of seismic global oven, right? Or whatever. That's right. That's right. And that's uh, there's a lot of illegal use of that kind of fuel uh, in, uh, uh, in in industrialized cities around Beijing, around in Hebei. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't recall ever having seen, you know, coal of that color before. I mean, how, what, what percentage of, of coal that's burnt is actually lignite? I don't have the exact numbers, uh, uh, Kaiser, but I think uh, uh, certainly if you are an illegal steel mill, uh, you don't have access to the right coal supplies, you're going to just go for uh, whatever's out there in the market. She also makes the case that it can be made cleaner by the washing, I guess was the terms. Yeah, used. can we talk a little yeah. about coal washing? What, what is the process of washing? Yeah, so essentially, uh, before you burn coal, you need to literally wash it with water to remove the impurities. Okay. And that has a significant effect in terms of reducing uh, the pollutants that come out after you, you, you pulverize it and then you burn it. Right, it just adds to the water pollution. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, what about, uh, I know that, that Greenpeace is doing work uh Quite a bit of work. I mean, it's one of the, the major things that you were. So I'm sorry. On. I just wanted yeah, sure, to, sure, sure. to interject. There were two things about coal in uh-huh. the movie that she pointed out, actually by Li Jingfeng. Uh, one was the coal washing, but two is just reducing the amount of coal. Uh huh. Okay, so that's really important because, as you said, China uses more coal than you know, Godzilla. Gas, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, actually, which is great. Which actually does lead me to the question I wanted to ask. But let's talk a little bit about China's gas reserves. China's. I mean, I was surprised that she's talking about pretty. Sizable proven reserves, right? Well, even before that, I just want to point out something that a lot of people didn't notice after November's U.S.-China announcement of Uh capping emissions. A week later, China came out with a new energy strategy action plan that actually capped absolute coal consumption by 2020. So I'll just quote the exact numbers. It caps absolute coal consumption in 2020 at 4.2 billion tons, which is only 16.3% more than what was burnt last year. Okay, so um, what this means is that Beijing alone is going to have to cut coal by 99%. 99%? Below 200,000 tons by 2030. And the big consuming regions of Hebei, Tianjin, and Shandong, they're going to have to cut coal use by up to 27% by 2030. Right, so... That's a huge cut in coal use. Um, absolute cap is different than uh, a cut in, let's say, p- per unit GDP right. cuts, right. right? Which is what we've promised in the past. Which is right, right. Energy intensity cuts. Right? To me, yeah. I don't know, Calvin, if you have any comments, but to me, I find this to be one of the most shocking environmental announcements in the last two decades. So well, shockingly I, good. You mean, you mean, yeah. Shocking, radical, uh, radical, radical, amazing, yeah. like unbelievable. Thank right. God China's doing this. But we're not quite sure how it's going to do this because it's so shocking, right? So I don't know, right. Calvin, do well, you have just, any? Just two points. I mean, first of all, uh, that cap, we're not quite sure whether that is, is that a very, it could be a very generous cap, right? It could be a cap that actually does not prevent the, you know, air pollution from being a problem. The other thing that I think that cap is, and I'm not completely sure about this, I think it is actually an energy cap, but it's described in terms of coal numbers, what they call total uh, standard uh-huh. coal equivalents. Uh, so that also takes into account all, ki- all kinds of other kinds of energy sources as well. It's not, it's not I, I, if I believe it's actually not a coal consumption <coughs> cap, it's an energy cap, but it's, it's, it's defined in terms of what they call total coal equivalents, which mm. is the standard of energy measure here in China. Okay, that's yeah. t- It'd be great to get somebody to to clarify that. I know Barbara Finnemore's uh, piece okay. on NRDC just talked about coal cap, but whatever it is, it's big. Yeah. Um. You know, even so, right? The world is coming together in Paris this year to right. talk about mm-hmm. global action, and we right. know already that the global commitments added up is not going to be enough. Right. 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 Well, that's why I think the other thing that was announced at the APEC summit, where China was going to commit to a peaking emissions by 2030. 2030. Now, that's extremely significant as well, because right. it basically means that uh, emissions are going to go down after that. 
and it was a great uh, assist, really, to uh, to global climate change negotiations and the lead up to Paris. But we, I mean, these two things intersect because coal is a contributor both to greenhouse gases and thus to global warming and to air pollution. But That's right. strictly speaking, we're talking about air pollution in this documentary, just, right. just so that everybody is clear on that. Um, one of the, the, the cures, right, I mean, to, to wean China off coal addiction, obviously, not everybody's going to go to solar, wind, and hydro right away. I mean, the intermediary step is still fossil, but it's considerably cleaner and it's natural gas. And this mm. is something that, that she talks about quite a bit and lays the play, blame, again, kind of squarely at the feet of the monopolistic uh, control that CNPC has over natural gas extraction, but she also talks about, like as I was, I was getting getting to earlier, about um, the sort of substantial proven reserves in in China. I, I I didn't know that China had quite as much natural gas as this. I mean, can you guys talk a little bit about that, about natural gas in China and the percentage of the energy mix it's it is currently and where it's going? Sure. So um, uh, China actually does have a lot of. Uh, proven reserves in gas. Um, unfortunately, unlike the U.S., it is geographically much more challenging to get to this to these gas reserves. Where, where are we talking about? Uh, in, the, uh, in the south of China, Sichuan province has a lot of stuff mm-hmm. right there. Uh, I believe also in the west of China, but I'm not quite sure about that. Um, and it also the the terrain is is more, much more challenging. Uh, there are water issues related to extracting that gas. Right. And uh, as she pointed out, in the U.S., the shale gas revolution has really been ignited because you have lots of little companies bidding and competing to get to these gas reserves, whereas in China, you basically have three. Uh, Also adding the other constraint, which is a pipeline infrastructure, which has to be built to get that gas transported to the right places for it to be burnt and turned into electricity and so forth. Mm. Uh, so right now, China has had some pretty aggressive goals for its, at least in, in the current 1250 plan for, for, for gas in, the, in, in, its, in, its, uh, in terms of energy use. Uh, but in terms of shale gas, it's probably not going to get there because of water constraints and because of the monopolistic uh, uh, situation among the three oil majors. Yeah, I remember uh, there was one MEP official uh, from who, who, who dams the CNPC saying that they're an only child who always is used to getting what they want and throws their toys around all over the place. Yeah. I mean, they're just so messy and inefficient and, and, and really, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's the long and short. So, so I think the, the um, you know, to summarize the natural gas, the shale gas uh, Not just shale issue. oil. We're not just talking about shale oil, right? Or shale gas, right? Well, right. that's, that's. Is I that think mainly big... what we're talking about or? What's shale coming gas? from the Soviet? I mean, from Russia, for example. Right. Yeah, so, right. So, 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 China, China wants more gas. Right. It is, and it is going uh, gangbusters across the board to exploit uh, gas reserves overseas. So, bringing gas to pipeline through Central Asia from Russia, uh, and also the export of uh, import of LNG from the eastern seaboard, and also to exploit its own gas reserves, which also includes shale gas as well. And coal-bed methane. Coal-bed methane and turning coal into gas, something we talked about the last time. Let's talk about this. Yeah, yeah, coal gasification, because this is, I mean, you you wanted to wrap up real quickly about gas, and then we'll move to gasification coal. It's okay. I just wanted to to point out that there's huge ambitions in China for gas. There's huge money going into it. But and, and the US and China are actually actively working together on technologies for China. However, if you look at a report that just came out by Columbia University, and uh, I forget what the Chinese entity that jointly released it uh, on uh, gas, basically, it says they have no idea. It could be either really good or really bad. That's essentially what the report <laughs> says. So it's a big, right, huge question mark. mark. <laughs> yeah, question mark. Uh, so coal gasification. This is something Greenpeace has been sort of working very hard to thwart, right? What's wrong with coal gasification? Okay, so uh, some 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 context. Uh, China has lots of lots of coal, not much gas. It has a lot of coal, which is actually located uh, in far off places, which are uh, difficult to transport to the eastern seaboard. So the the thinking uh, with these stranded coal reserves is to can we turn that coal into gas? and then pipe that stuff across and they get it burnt on the eastern seaboard of China. Uh, the problem with a lot of the coal-to-gas projects in China is, one, there are too many of them. Two, they're located in places where you have water scarcity issues. They're already environmentally stressed. That's right, right, right. that's right. And three, um, 
they also cause uh, uh, air pollution issues where uh, when they don't have the right uh, equipment in place and so forth. To deal with that. That's right. So Greenpeace has been doing some work looking at the scale of coal to gas development here in this country relative to how much gas China really wants to burn. And we're just finding a huge bubble in place right now. Can I just ask a question? And it can be a very brief answer. We don't need to get sidetracked on it. But I'm just curious because you, Greenpeace, helped out in the, in the, the for the information gathering, at least for the documentary, right? And I don't know if Juice did. No. No, no. But I mean, for, for both of you, you know, the Chinese Environmental Protection Agency is, we know, very weak compared to other mm-hmm. places. And mm-hmm. what is the reaction of the, what is your cooperation with the, with the Chinese government? How are you accepted? Uh, you, maybe the answer is different for both of you, but Greenpeace, you say you're working towards, you know, against gasification. What do you feel? Do you feel pressure, uh, cooperation, pushback? What's the feeling? Okay, so, I mean, uh, I guess uh, uh, foreigners to China like to think of the Chinese government as one monolithic entity that thinks with one voice and so forth. The, the, the reality is that it is a multi-headed uh, dragon. <laughs> uh, dragon, uh, yeah, right. Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and they are constantly jostling with each other, trying to get their own agendas in place and so forth. And, you know, faced with this situation, we have to also be aware of the, the politics behind the policies. <laughs> so we do exchange information with progressive parts of the government. Uh, Li Phone is someone that has spoken at some of events and so forth. Uh, and, and we're constantly trying to assess to what extent are these various ministries, uh, who's weaker, who's, who's less weak, who's more effective, who's less effective. Uh, what are tools are in place? Is it information transparency? Is it, if it's environmental law? Is it the SOEs? The SOEs, mm-hmm. they also have some, some form of political power. If we push an SOE, are we going to get something that, is, that makes more sense for the planet as opposed to pushing the MEP, which is institutionally much weaker? Uh-huh. Peggy, what about you? What about your, uh, your relationship with um, the, the powers that be? Well, um, two things. Juice's modus operandi is basically collaboration, right? So we view ourselves as a solution provider to people who can gr- create great change. So in China, in, oft, in you know, most cases, that's the government. Uh, and then we figure out how we can bring people to the table to work with the right decision makers to get a specific change to happen that we're looking for, whether it's introducing smart grid um, or mm. introducing a new way to eat in a to eat in a way that's good for you and good for the planet, mm. or to um, you know come up with a movement, the China Dream, a, a new a new way of living. Uh, not not that China Dream. Yeah. <laughs> so although I, I've heard it said that, that that you know she kind of indirectly took your uh, your that phrasing via Tom Friedman at that dinner we were present at. That's right. Is that, is yes. that true? It, it, w- <laughs> it you true. can yeah I, actually it is true you can sort of trace that back. Wow. It's, uh, I was um, there. I was wow. there. I was yeah. at the beginning of the China Dream. Well, actually, you know, Kaiser, you've actually formed a lot of my thinking behind China Dream, but that's wow. probably a different show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're just, yeah. Okay, you get all the questions from the rest of the show. I'll guess. Um, I wanted to move on to the other big culprit. I mean, this is, I thought was really um, kind of a more interesting thing. And, and I don't know if it was selected because so many of the people in our audience were presumed automobile drivers, but it was, I mean, so much of it was on, on vehicular emissions. And that was so interesting because that uh, gave her an entree to, to talk about refineries and to talk, to talk about, you know, the, the real, you know, sinister culprit behind the scenes on, in all of this was CNPC, was, you know, the petroleum organization, whether it's talking about regulatory capture, how, you know, so many of the people who actually form emission standards are, are fucking oil men. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, that was just sort of shocking to me. Uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about the, about automobiles. I mean, that was again something that I thought was uh, was, was shocking. That, that uh, you know, thirty percent of Beijing's pollution, but Hangzhou. My God, I had. No, do, you, do you remember this, David? Forty mm-hmm. percent of Hangzhou's PM two point five is vehicle. Based. Well, I think it's fifty percent here in Beijing. Yeah, right? I'd seen that before. Really? I, yeah, I'd seen t- charts that say where does p- uh, China's pollution come from, and I, yeah, it's surprising how much it comes from cars. Yeah, right. right. So, what's going on? What, why? I mean, why is it that you know we're, what's wrong? What? Why are uh, you know cities like Tokyo with huge numbers of automobiles, or cities like Los Angeles? You know, you've been on the four hundred five at rush hour. You know, what she like. explains part of that in the documentary. Yeah, I thought she called. explained it really yeah, well. I and thought a, so too. A so large part of it was trucks, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I was I was amazed. Even little things like when you put the gas in the in the tank, yeah. your fumes are coming out. Vapor, right. vapor, vapor, yeah, yeah. Right. vapor. Which which when you yeah, accumulates to a right. vast amount of vapor right. being. But I actually have a slightly slightly different view on why she focused on the transportation sector. Let's hear it. And I think it had to do with the fact that she had a lot of great material on that particular mm. point. I mean, she could have done a huge expose on the steel sector, for example. Right. An industry that is full of holes and full of regulatory issues and full of corruption and so forth. She could have gone directly into the coal power sector, which is enormous as well. Cement. Uh, and cement, uh, yeah. glass making, construction. So you know, basically companies. all of these really energy-intensive right. sectors. That's that. right. But she had a lot of good information on the transportation sector. She was able to re- really draw some really interesting uh, stories from it. Mm-hmm. And to illustrate some really key points that she's trying to make, first of all, uh, the fact that this this uh, the there is basically regulatory breakdown, right? It's, it's non-transparent. Yeah. It's not a participation. So I think she was kind of using that, uh, doing a deep dive in the transportation sector to draw some key concepts that would apply to other sectors as well. Now, what was that great scene when the, I can't remember the official who was talking, but he said, you know, the three problems are the first one is is regulation. The second one is regulation. The third one is Guanli, regulation. That's right. right. I also thought that, uh, you know, her going after the oil, co- after the, well, you know, the Ministry of Petroleum, as we call it, it's not like Al Gore attacking Exxon Mobil. She's attacking the the, the government. Whole, yeah. Yeah. Right. right. So it's very courageous. I think the main message there was is that there are three different ministries that are all supposedly in charge, but none of them are in charge. That's right. 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 So what she was trying to do. Well, break, break it down. So the Ministry of Environmental Protection is obviously one of them. I think transport was another was one. Another one. The third one was what? I can't remember. I can't remember. There were three on the screen, remember, and the first one said, it's not us. The second one said, it's not us. And then the third <laughs> exactly. one said, well, it's all three of us together. But, but, <laughs> but that's, the, that's the problem with sustainability issues in general is, is that they're all nexus issues, mm-hmm. right? So energy, food, water, land, they all overlap with each other. So there's many, many different ministries that are have to interact and collaborate, um, but ultimately somebody's head has to be in charge of enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have three different uh, ministries that are, you know, supposedly in charge, but none of them are in charge, enforcement doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So what she's trying to illustrate in a great detailed way is how sustainability is a very complex issue. And so for China to be more effective than it's already been, and I have to, again, congratulate China on what it has done already, which is more than most other countries around the world are doing. But it still has a lot of work to do in cleaning up the way that it governs these types of very complex nexus issues. And it's not just the oil. She's, She's just using that as an example, right? But if you look at food, right, our food systems, if you look at urbanization, they run into the same problems. It's like, who's in charge? There's too many people in charge. So therefore, the right thing never happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's talk very quickly about diesel trucks and its contribution. And then I want to move to uh, sort of that other topic that's been lurking behind many, uh, which is, you know, the whole uh, what happened to this video, what was behind, you know, the the, the politics behind it all. And then I, I do want to raise one more question before we get there. But let's let's talk about diesel trucks. I mean, I thought it was interesting the whole that it's seventeen percent of the traffic on the road. But they, it can, again, like the small burning, the small coal, it contributes a disproportionate amount of vehicular based emissions. Right. Right. She said it looks like it was on fire when she saw one. Right. 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 Oh yeah, from the south. Yeah. From the, the, I mean, I've, you've all seen this before, right? Yeah. You've driven on highways behind these trucks, right? So. Um, what 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 is her solution for this? I mean, it just it seems like it's the pretty fucking intractable problem. You've got all these um, fake uh, approval systems. Right, right. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they, oh yeah, we're we're you know exporting this to our brothers in Africa, right? Uh, and you, you can you buy whatever you want. You, you can get that sticker if you just pay a little bit more for it, right? That's right. But if you you she also pointed out that the reason for those fake stickers being being out there is because it, nobody's getting caught. Right. And nobody's actually applying the laws in place. So if if I'm a company that's, that's actually going to produce that uh, cleaner fuel or, or to actually apply those standards, then I'm going to lose out to my competition. Do you think she was uh, it was was it a realistic portrayal of Los Angeles? Um, I mean, she 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 was uh, sh- showing how you know in this I think a, a pretty um, interesting piece of the documentary. She was in LA doing some reporting and showing these roadside sort of random stops and vehicle emissions tests. Uh, done, I mean, 
was that is I don't I don't know that, that's realistic so I used to live in Los Angeles right. in uh, 1990 to 93 and at the time the smog was so bad um, when you drive to East LA you couldn't see both sides of the, ma- the mountains on both sides it was oh. so bad that when you fly in you'd see this layer of brown and be really depressed I remember yeah. in the 80s, and I'd yeah. just like cough and cough and cough so now it's a completely different scenario um, yeah. but yeah realistic and London don't forget the segment on London. Oh, yeah, that was a, the, the big smoke of 1852 yes. or, or 1952. So what's, what's interesting, again, 18,000 people died. 4,000 extra coffins were ordered. I don't think that was in the, <laughs> in the documentary. Oh, but that was, that was a tr- true event that happened. And because, um, because of that and because of the uh, – there's no progress being made in London, I actually helped a couple – a few people start something called the Clean Air Roundtable of London last year. Mm-hmm. So they're – also dealing with the same issues. In fact, London has some of the most polluted places in the world, right? Sulfur dioxide, Oxford Circus. If you happen to shop there or live there, <laughs> try not to. Try to avoid it. Oh, I did not know that. Mm. <laughs> I thought that was good. I mean, in a way, I mean, obviously it's, it's relevant, but I mean, it was good that she included it just to deflect criticism that she was, you know, giving the in other industrialized countries a break. A free pass, yeah. I yeah. mean, she, she showed... I mean, if anything, if you look at those scenes of, of London, you say, this horrific. is worse than I've ever seen it in right. Beijing. It was horrific. I mean, I mean, that must have done something to the audience as well. I think it also, you know, it, it sort of gives her cred and sort of goodwill that, you know, I'm not, this is not bashing here, folks. We all have the same problem. China, we're just talking about how China is going to solve its problem. I thought that was brilliant. That yeah, she well, she's just that. saying, look, China is on the development path that other countries she's have followed just in a very short period of time, right. 30 years instead of 100 years. Right. Yeah. I really like the fact that she brought in the argument of economics as well, where she mm-hmm. talked about how, you know, one ton of steel was causing so much ton of, tons of pollution and yeah. so forth. But also... But the profits the day, being generated from well, it weren't enough to buy an egg. Well, yeah. I mean, how much money was actually being made from selling that ton of steel less, how much than a, mon- less than a coke I think. that's right how much money was being made from selling that ton of coal and so forth so not only do we have air pollution as a signal that something's wrong the economics don't make sense as well right. mm-hmm. guys you know yeah. the, 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 you guys are building a bubble that's basically not sustainable it's this whole the whole thing does not work if there's a single change that comes from this movie uh, if if the truck issue is solved that would be huge Mm-hmm. That means it's like mm-hmm. she's an absolute hero. Mm-hmm. Sure. One change. But so, but what what is it really tr- doing? I mean, it's trying to mobilize popular consciousness, right? Does and government con- action. Does does right? Sure. Um, indirectly, right? So presumably, we the citizens uh, lean then or apply some sort of pressure to 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 government. Does that really work? I mean, does it does it matter? Does does popular consciousness about uh, about in a helpful, if it's done constructively, yes, it does. And do you feel like this was done constructively? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Good. I mean, just look at the front page of Shanghai Daily and China Daily today. Okay, there's, there's no question that that people are are are, are aware of it, and and uh, I, I'm what I'm just asking is, you know, how responsive do you think that that the government is to? Uh, consciousness at a popular level does it matter that the middle class is now all solidly you know behind are they ready to also make the personal sacrifices i I wonder about that i mean people who are driving uh you know to go less than five kilometers driving to go you know a Mm. fucking kilometer i mean it's just insane yeah i mean i think i think uh this appointment the last time we did this i mean i if you look at stop saying that pollution (laughs) (laughs) we're trying to forget (laughs) to pretend yeah yeah. um, maintain the fiction It, the whole thing about air pollution look, exploded back in 2013, right? We had the airpocalypse in Jan of that year. I would year. say 2008. Okay. Right. Uh, well, it exploded, though, in, it, in 13, right? Yeah, January yeah. 2013. Um, and then, then we had the air pollution plan come out uh, later that year and so forth. And then basically that plan has been running, been trying, then pushing. And then, you know, people have kind of got used to it and so forth. But anything, this, I think this film has basically helped reinvigorate that discussion again. Right. And, and, to, and, and timed it perfectly well, obviously. I, I think, you know, one thing, you know, it's come up time and time again, but the, the, the powers that control this issue are not monolithic. They have different interests. They, they have different agendas. Mm. And, uh, and what that means is that there's no single answer to the, to the question. What, what you do need is a, is a steady wave of, of, uh, of aware and angry or at least upset uh, middle class or people with means that can just put pressure, and the pressure can be something as simple as social media, but it can also be, you know, actually doing things like Kaiser was saying, you know, 
the chi- China is is this is so that's one of the reasons it seems so fragile and brittle now is that there's so many er- so many areas that could potentially explode like this did briefly you know points of discontent and everything. And so, I think another way to look at it is, again, sustainability is a bunch of little tiny gears that all need to be aligned in exactly the same direction if we're going to make effective change. Mm-hmm. So international uh, governments and uh, foreigners will look at this movie and say, oh, what kind of great pressure are we putting on the government and what kind of change will happen? But instead, I think what it's doing is helping the government prepare the masses for the sacrifices and the change that Very needs good. to happen. Yeah, I, I think I think that's actually what this was intended to do, is sort of soften people up for, I mean, to, to take the hit uh, in lifestyle. And, so is that and, segueing into the reasons for the documentary? Yeah, so let's talk about that now. Uh, let's let's remember, let's review the timeline again. So this co- comes out on, on Saturday, midday, the 28th. By Sunday evening, it has garnered close to 100 million views. Mm. Sunday evening, we also see the first directives come out that are asking major media not to proactively push this thing. Mm. There had already been very positive coverage in um, many party-controlled media, including People's Daily. Right. People's Daily Online, by the way, was one of the named partner media partners uh, for the documentary mm. itself. Um, it, it, it went crazy, and by by Tuesday, Wednesday, we were talking 200 million views, and by the time that it was actually when the, when the order actually came down, apparently from the combined GAPP and 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 SARF to the General Administration of Press and Publication and State Administration of Radio, Film, and Television, which fused into one into one regulatory organ, they were that has putative control over internet video. They sent the order down late Friday afternoon to have the video taken down, and, and by that evening, it was findable almost nowhere. Why? What I mean, why was it allowed to get as big as it did, and why was it taken down when it was taken down? Well, what happened at Baidu? I can't, I can't reveal, I mean, I can't say, say personally. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, everything that I'm saying here is only based on what's been reported in, 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 in media. I'm not going to, um, I mean, just, just full disclosure, of course, I work for Baidu. It's, it's a, you know, it's it's illegal to talk about specific orders given to specific companies, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not mm-hmm. going to do that. Well, it's clear that she had some support uh, from the, the from the Environmental Protection Agency, right? Yeah, yeah. So, the so new minister. The new minister. Yeah. She she was right, so, uh, yeah, the, 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 the presence of the of the documentary on Yoku and all the major shows that it had. Uh, I can never remember the new name of Sarf. Sarf, Gap Sarf, or whatever it is. So the the the, the state administration Yoku was radio. helping with the marketing. Yes. Yeah. So right. I mean, it, it 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 had a green light at a very high level at that point. Yeah. Many MEP officials on camera, right? Yes. I, I mean, I look. She she was uh, she's been a long time CCTV reporter. She's 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 connected, right? She's connected. She has got friends in these places right. and so forth. She didn't have the official. I'm not sure the <clears> official <throat> go ahead from the whoever right. the propaganda department and so forth, but she primed the pipe, right? She 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 been doing this long t- uh, doing this book for a long time, and she probably had uh, had reached out to her contacts in these places, saying, "Hey, I'm going to be doing this. I want to give you a heads up about it. Please don't uh, uh, censor it when it first comes out," and was able to. I think the reason why it exploded was because the content spoke for itself. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to the reason of why it was taken down, I think, I mean, Peggy mentioned that earlier. Um, I think uh, it served its purpose, right? It, it, it created a wave. And uh, I think the government potentially thought, oh, okay, thank you very much. Um, that's enough now. Uh, with the, in fact, the Ministry of Environment Protection ha- did do a press conference uh, yesterday or the day before. Where the, the censorship of it was not mentioned at all. No, none of the. Right. He, well, he was given some. He was given pre-screen questions, and he answered right. that quite dutifully, and so forth. But he did say that we can't rely on the heavens to deal with air pollution any mm-hmm. further. And we we hear you. Thank you very much. That's enough. Right. I, I think that's probably. Well, I, I think that's probably right, and then you can do it, Peg. But, but yeah. the, the, I just emphasize again: it's not monolithic. The mm. people that put that on, on the web are not the same people that that later. Necessarily, that went on to object to it. Right. I was at I was at CCTV, I guess, three days ago now for the for some of these two sessions shows, mm. and they were the big talk that I was a fly on the wall. You know, listening to saying we can't let this documentary take hold of the discourse because we're going to talk about pollution and we don't want everything to be about this documentary. Mm. So they were saying, don't mention it. Mm. I mean, don't don't at all mention it at all. And mm. now it's all gone. Mm. So, mm. Peggy, do you feel like it has? 
done what it was intended to do. I mean, I, I guess one of the things that I've been sort of surprised about is how little anger I'm hearing over the fact that it was censored now. Well, I think she was expecting it to be censored. Okay, it's just a matter of how long it took. Um, I think that she, as Calvin said, primed the pipe uh, like we do. We have, we're all connected people, right? So we, if we were to do the same thing, we would obviously go yourself. to our advisors, <laughs> our wise advisors, and say, what do you think of this? How could we tweak this so it's most constructive? And that's exactly what she did, right? Mm. She went to her myriad of advisors and said, how can we, is the story correct? And, you know, how can we make sure that this is constructive for China? And by the way, when... We know it's going to be censored, so when should we post it so that it would be positioned to get the most views? So obviously in the weekend, in the middle of the night, you know, Yuku helped her market it. Um, but, you know, clearly if you look at the, the waves of, uh, you know, jayos and criticisms, you'll see the overall people approved. But then I think what happened was a Koch brother-like takeover, right? <laughs> the, the oil uh, monopolies, the, the um, you know, my coal companies, et cetera, probably, my guess is they probably made a concerted effort to discredit her because then you see all of these nasty personal life things come out in the news about her, which is totally irrelevant to the content of the movie, frankly, but just try to damage her as an individual, Mm. Um, and they still are making this. When, when, when you Baidu, the Chaijing, you get one of the first things you get is some uh, articles with some some people from the from from Sino Peck or whatever criticizing her. That's mm. that's like the first thing you get on the search. Mm. So All right. So and you know in China, you know you can buy votes. You can easily you know get a get a lot of views on that type of criticism if you wanted that to overshadow the good that came out of the movie. And I think that's what's happening. <clears throat> I'm surprised that the, the, the CNPC or the petroleum lobby at all has anyone left to stand up and, and, um, and, and oppose this. Because, I mean, one of the things that I think that... that no, <laughs> seriously. So, so old and crooked. No, 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 no. Because, <laughs> because, because, because they've been made such a, a, a high-profile target of the anti-corruption drive Absolutely. from the very beginning. Yeah. Who was the first tiger that, 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 that Xi Jinping went after? It was Jiang Jiemin who was the general manager and then the chairman of CNPC before being appointed to this uh, to, to SASAC, the, the State Administration mm-hmm. of State-Owned Assets, or State, whatever the fuck that, that acronym is, SASAC, State-Owned Assets Commission. SASAC, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, followed later by Julian Kong. Exactly, Kong, followed by Julian Kong, who also had his, his, his base of Dick power. Dick Cheney-type connections. Right, mm-hmm. Um and and so my working theory originally was um, because she had made CNPC such an obvious target of this, was that this was sort of intended to get us ready for another major tiger. And I think we all kind of have guesses as to who that would have been, somebody else with a very strong power base in the petroleum sector. Uh, I thought that that was, was, I mean, that was my maybe overly kind of Jungian um, logistic conspiracy theory. But I mean, I wasn't alone in thinking that. Um, I mean, it was it was clear that that MEP was pushing her toward naming um, the CNPC as the a big culprit here, I and mean, that's who they they kept going after with the whole you know beating on regulatory capture and things like that. So, um, what what are some of the other theories that you're hearing about the the timing of this? What are what are her timing about? No, the timing of the really, um, but also the timing of the um, the, the squelching and and uh, how this fits into sort of broader government objectives in in the near term. The the, the only th- the only other theory that I think I'd already said was that that, that this was the the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing. That okay. that mm. no one expected it to become this viral, mm. and if the people who if the media censors who are now in charge of the the two sessions messages had known about this, they would have been, you know, incensed. I should have had nothing to do with it. It hit, right. it hit them totally by surprise, and that's why they reacted so strongly. Well, a lot of my, my very smart analyst friends are suggesting it says you keep, you know, you, you point to the 250 million views. That's what caused it. I mean, right. nobody expected, expected this that. thing right. to to have as as much. By the way, it took me at least ten clicks to watch the entire movie. So let's divide that number a little bit. Okay, <laughs> what do you mean? You didn't watch it in one you... swallow. Are you kidding me? Oh, I see. You could. You, you mean that the the number of clicks is, yeah. is just uh, different it attempts. It took me to, at uh, least ten views just to get through the entire movie. Let's well, just say it's only one hundred and fifty million. <laughs> That's still a huge amount. Still, I mean, it's just, yeah, it, was, it was a huge, 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 huge amount. 
Okay, great. I mean, obviously, the the truth is, none of us know what the hell really was was. No, I think David was accurate, and so was Calvin early on, which is, um, you know, the government is not monolithic, right? No, no, we, that that much we do know, yeah. <laughs> but we don't know who who is aligned with whom. And uh, exactly who's yeah we, we we there's 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 much that we don't. There's also you know all the this is common the internet social media effect where you have a lot of Lao Baixing who are frankly jealous of the elite. You may have people who begrudged her from her past, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I won't talk about her past because I think it's irrelevant. Okay. But uh, you know right. people are just dredging up stuff that's completely irrelevant to what she's trying to sure. accomplish. Yeah, and they, they're saying that she has actually a family that's connected to Big Coal and Sensi. Is that? Are you hearing anything about that? Well, the only thing that really I would love to ask her about, if I got her, in, you know, at a cup of coffee, is how is this going to affect her husband's family, who oh, right. is, you know, from a mining company, mm. right? So she married into uh, Mayor Dai or Kwang Dai, right? Oh, so. Yeah. I've never heard that one before. So, you know, really, if she were to start with herself, right, man in the mirror? Kwong means mine. Or or, uh, mining, 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 mining. Yeah, so if she were to start with family in the mirror, what is going to happen to that family? Mm. They need Mm. to change. They'd just immigrate to the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would still leave the mines then, right? So, so. Right. we've 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 um I think we've we've had a really fun time here going mind through this. this as much as mind we this as well. Right? <laughs> we've we've, we've uh, we're uh, ready now, I think, to move on to that section uh, of where we make recommendations. Uh, ordinarily, we start with Jeremy. I'm going to pass that honor to Dave. Oh, wow. What's your what's uh, what's your recommendation for us? The same as, oh, well, I won't say it. Uh, You're pretending. The uh, a former intern for the Seneca, Hudson Lockett, uh, did yeoman's work and, and uh, collated lots of information into a big three-part article in the China Economic Review, which you passed on to us by email. Right. And uh, so I just want to shout out to Hudson, which we read. I read that, got a lot out of it. It's amazing, yeah. It's, a, I mean, it's just yeah. jam-packed with great facts. Just the kind of things we're talking about with lots of graphs and you know, hard to cram that much into a short article. He did a great job. Hudson, yes, uh, if you're listening, you know. Oh, sorry, the name of it is China's Carbon Emissions Could Save the World or Doom It in the China Economic Review. Right. Uh, Hudson was, like I said, um, he, I mean, like you said, he was our, our former intern here, uh, and he's just kicking ass. He's just mm. sort of almost a one-man show down there at the China Economic Review, yep. riding up a storm, and we're super proud of him and, and think he's going to go. Jayo, Hudson. Yeah, Jayo. <laughs> We've got to come up with an alternative to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. Jia Tian Qi. Tian Yeah. Come on, Kaiser. All right, I got to get with the program. I'm still sort of, I'm a fossil. Let's move on to Calvin. What do sure. you have uh, So my recommendation is a piece called The Greatest Politician You Never Knew. And it's just been written. I just saw it on Facebook, and I'll send it over to Kaiser. We can get the link. It's about uh, Lee Kuan Yew, and who, uh, the former prime minister of Singapore, who is unfortunately uh, might be on, the, um, uh, on his, on his way out. Yeah. And, um, and it talks about uh, his, his legacy. And um, and as a you know I'm, I didn't I'm not Singaporean but I grew up in Singapore, uh, growing up how a lot of people had a conflicted kind of feeling about his form of governance and so forth, mm-hmm. and how also it's also been held up as a model a, 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 a tremendously successful model of authoritarian capitalism, that um, or benevolent authoritarianism that the Chinese government has actually been very keen to study. Right. Uh, yes. The Chinese government still sends a lot of officials, the Central Party School, to the Lee Kuan Yew School of Government for training sessions and so forth. Lee Kuan Yew, we know, was also very, very close and had a lot of rapport with the, the late uh, Deng Xiaoping as well here right. in China. So I think it's a very timely piece. Great. I'll, I'll, the greatest politician you never knew. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, I've, I've known him some time. I mean, I wrote quite a bit on, on neo-authoritarianism and mm. on technocracy. And you of course you have. You can't talk about that without <laughs> talking about old Lee Kuan Yew. Mm. Uh, his, his autobiography is actually a, a, a really good, it's a slog, it's a bit of a slog, but it, you know, his story is the story of Singapore. I mean, it's, it's just, it's fascinating. That's right. 
Uh, you ready, Peggy? You got some points? Can I do two? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, please. since this is my first time on your show. Yes. Um, so one is I'd really like to uh, give a shout out to the Natural Resources Defense Council yeah. and Barbara Finnamore. And they run something called the China Coal Consumption Cap Plan and Policy Research Project. And they is there a have acronym for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was, I was trying say. to come up with one, but okay. I think it's like CCCCPPPRP. But they have reports like the true cost of coal in 2012 and coal u- utilization's contribution to China's air pollution that all came out last fall. And they're running. This is an ongoing uh, project that I really highly recommend you follow. The second is is that people, individuals watching this TV, sh- uh, sorry, this documentary, must be wondering how can I do something? How can I contribute? Yeah. And other than memorize Yao Er San Liu Jiu, Yao Er San Liu Jiu, Yao Er San Liu Jiu, okay? Yeah. One two three six nine. That's the, the reporting number. So if you mm-hmm. see uh, uh, a factory that's in violation, or go on. So other than that, the thing that you should know is is that the way we eat is actually the single largest driver of greenhouse gas emissions. So not just CO2, but methane. I want to correct that. The way I eat is the single. (laughs) (laughs) So the way we eat is the single largest driver of greenhouse gas emissions. And actually, if you just eat healthy, in a healthy way, you can reduce your personal greenhouse gas emissions by up to 40%, Mm. according to, uh, you know, academic reports in uh, London School. Um, so if you lo- so the report that you should look at is on our website actually www.juice.org j u c c c e dot org mm-hmm. slash eat and learn how our kids we can teach our kids how to eat in a way that's good for you and good for the planet. That's great. I guess it's probably that's not pop tarts though. Right? <laughs> well, it's not beef. Damn. It's not huge steak imported <laughs> from Australia <laughs> to China. <laughs> Well, we're going to um, delete that recommendation. That's <laughs> <laughs> Just wait for the 3D printed beef from soybean. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what? I, I totally forgot to, to, to mention what I thought was like the most poignant moment in that documentary. It was when um, she was talking to this MEP official, uh, one of the regulators, and he was talking about, you know, the toothlessness of the yeah. MEP, and now apparently it's it's it translates well because he was talking about how, uh, he's afraid to open his mouth because people will af- see people that I see don't that have, I have teeth. teeth. <laughs> <laughs> My God, I, I just thought that yeah. that merited mention before I go on and 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 talk about um, actually very toothsome reads by. Um, Two of my favorite writers writing on China. One is Peter Hessler, mm-hmm. who, of course, uh, was the New York correspondent here for a long time, wrote that tremendous uh, trilogy, uh, started with Rivertown uh, on his um, two years spent as a, a uh, Peace Corps volunteer in the Sichuan city of Fuling. Uh, great guy. Uh, I consider him a good friend. He, he wrote uh, a terrific piece in last week's New Yorker called Travels with My Censor, which I think is uh, one of the more nuanced and mm-hmm. su- I use those words too much, nuanced and subtle and um, well-gray-shaded uh, pieces about censorship and working as I do for a company that's... It humanizes yeah, yeah. the act well, of but, censorship. I mean, it's, it's, it, right, but I mean, I think it, it, it puts it in perspective. I mean, you know, it... it, 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 it the binary narrative of, you know, where, where you, you either... Um, do not comply. You refuse entirely, or or you or or you're a sellout. That's just that's that's actually counterproductive. Uh, I mean, I, I work for as as you all know for for Baidu, and you know, uh, we feel like I mean, I sleep well at night knowing that we're uh, this company is trying to uh, expand the information horizons for ordinary Chinese people, and do we have to make compromises? Yes. Is it better that we make compromises than than just not operate? Yes. It's better that we do. Uh, anyway, it's a, a very good piece, um, and of course, in the style of Pete Hessler, it's beautifully written. Hmm. The other is Chris Beam, uh, who, who writes for the New Republic. Uh, he's a former uh, Slate writer, and I, I'm a big Slate fan. Uh, he wrote a, a story about this guy named Mamuro Samurugochi, who was a composer, uh, Tokyo-based um, faux composer. <laughs> it's called uh, The Deaf Composer Who Fooled a Nation, and it's just this unbelievable yarn which I mean it, the first half of it you're already just kind of blown away just uh, and then when he drops his little surprise on you in the second half of the story you're just out of your seat and it's just 
it's a, a it's it's one of those stranger than fiction uh, accounts and uh I mean, as, as somebody who's you know deeply appreciative of music, it, it's it's I, I don't know how musical Chris is, but he wrote it as though I mean he had some some knowledge of the world of 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 of, of music. It's terrific. Uh, again, that's in the New Republic, which has had a near death experience, but has um, apparently come back. At least they have Chris Beam, the deaf composer who fooled the nation. Uh, and go back and listen to to David interviewing Chris about his terrific New Republic story about. Um, uh, American the football. American football team in, in well not an American uh, American style football team uh, of young guys in Chongqing, <laughs> great story. Which is going to be a, a movie. Sony optioned it, oh, so yeah, yeah right. so it'll, it'll it'll be great. And somebody should option this too for a crazy kind of HBO style miniseries. <laughs> it's it's the crazy. Anyway, um, fingers crossed that this recording worked out. <laughs> Peggy. What a delight to have you here. I it mean, was great to celebrate your birthday with you yeah, on the show. Gonna <laughs> have you back again soon, I hope, uh, <laughs> next time you're, you're in town, because there's always environmental topics to be talked about. And same goes to you, Calvin. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to having you Thanks, back. Thanks, guys. Again. It's been fun. Yeah, all both times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, man, we'll see you next week. Okay. And uh, Jeremy will be back. Uh, we we're going to get the whole Skype thing worked out, and so he'll be he'll be calling it in. And I know you know it's not the same without him. Uh, We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.